This is the Visible Hand. My name is Jordi Blanes y Vidal. My guest today is Maggie Jones, who is an assistant professor in economics at Emory University. Today we are going to talk about her paper, The Slaughter of the Bison and the Reversal of Fortunes on the Great Plains, which is joined with Rob Gillesau and Don Fair. The paper was published in 2023 at the Review of Economic Studies. Maggie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Native Americans do worse nowadays in dimensions such as education, income, wealth, and many others relative to Americans of other ethnic origins. Before we discuss the issue of the bison extinction, will you discuss what are the leading explanations for this underperformance? Yeah, so I think that there's an emerging body of work Uh, that is starting to show that the legacy of colonialism is really the root of any kind of socioeconomic disparities that we observe today. So as you mentioned, we see that there are differences in uh, many of these different observable outcomes uh, when we compare outcomes of indigenous nations to that of other people in North America. And a lot of this stems from essentially these colonial policies, um, the legacy of settler colonialism, and the kind of ongoing Uh, colonial processes that lead to um, differences across these different communities. So, Maggie, if if you could be a little bit more specific about what this like legacy of colonialism means, so we have the Native Americans, Indigenous nations. They were living in, say, what is now the U.S. or Canada. Then the white settlers arrive. What are the things that they specifically did? I mean, I can obviously imagine them, but if you could be a bit more descriptive, what are the things that they specifically did that are contributing factors to this? Yeah, so a lot of the factors that I'm thinking about that the existing literature has shown to continue to affect uh, contemporary outcomes are things like federal policies. So Uh, like the Dawes Act, which essentially took Indigenous lands, um, fractionated Indigenous lands on reservations, and then transferred them into fee simple or locked them into trust uh, with the federal government um, that made it very difficult for Indigenous people to do any kind of economic development initiatives on their lands. Um, So that's one example. Another uh, has to do with the forced coexistence of Indigenous nations on reservations, So often the federal government would essentially force Indigenous nations who had no kind of history of uh, engaging with one another in terms of their forms of governance, essentially uh, forcing them to exist together on reservations in a kind of ethnically fractionalized environment. And so the existing literature on the Dawes Act, so papers by Brian Lennard, uh, Nick Parker, Terry Anderson, work on fractionation by Christian Dippel, Uh, have shown that these types of policies continue to reverberate in Indigenous communities today. You mentioned at some point in the introduction that there is a long-standing puzzle regarding the relative poverty of Indigenous nations in the interior of North America today. And one thing that came to mind is why this was a, a puzzle. I mean, in some respect, you could have already explained, which is that Maybe some of these federal policies or things were particularly severe in certain areas. My understanding is that in the interior, 
of North America. Generally, everybody is typically poorer than in the coast. That includes white Americans. So wouldn't it be natural that Native Americans would also do worse when they are living in the interior? Well, so when we're talking about the puzzle, we're essentially discussing a kind of reversal of fortunes, right? So um, the literature in economic history has uh, suggested that uh, at least in the 1800s, indigenous people in the Great Plains region, according to measurements like height, typically had levels of well-being that were better than other nations or other countries uh, around the world. Right. And so this is around the 1800s that we see that these people on the Great Plains were actually some of the wealthiest, if we're thinking about standard of living, people in the world. And so today what we see, if we look at measures of income per capita, we see this kind of reversal is that indigenous people on the plains typically have lower incomes per capita in comparison to indigenous people in other regions of the United States, uh, but also in comparison to other uh, demographic groups. And so the puzzle that we're talking about is not necessarily the fact that today indigenous people in the plains have different incomes than people elsewhere in the country. It's that we've seen this reversal, that at one point in time, they actually had standard of livings that were better than other people, other indigenous nations in the United States or other nations elsewhere. And that today we see these metrics reflecting the kind of opposite result. I mean, as the title of your paper indicates, an explanation that you're going to give here about why this reversal of fortunes uh, took place is uh, the rapid slaughter of the bison uh, in the late 19th century. Could you tell us, first of all, what a bison is? And secondly, what happened to the bisons that were roaming around certain areas of North America uh, in the second half of the 19th century? Sure. Yeah. So the the bison, they're an animal that ranged really over a vast territory of North America uh, prior to European settlement. The kind of, I guess, the best estimates that we have today suggest that around 25 to 30 million bison uh, roamed in the regions between the Rocky Mountains um, and then kind of bordered by the Appalachian Mountains in the East Coast all the way into Canada um, and then all the way south into uh, some of the northernmost Mexican states. Um, and the bison were really a source of livelihood, a cultural symbol, a spiritual symbol for a lot of indigenous nations within these regions. So the title of the paper, The Slaughter of the Bison uh, and the Reversal of Fortunes on the Great Plains, it's referring to the fact that in the late 1800s, so starting in about 1871, the bison were effectively slaughtered to near extinction. Um, and this occurred in a period of about 10 to 20 years, predominantly by uh, European hide hunters who flooded into the Great Plains and uh, really eliminated this, again, source of livelihood, um, source of economic prosperity, source of cultural symbolism. So that's what essentially we're trying to study in this paper is how that event manifested in terms of the economic trajectories of indigenous communities that were on the plains that relied on the bison. And is this a potential explanation for this kind of puzzle that we identified in the sense that you see this reversal of well-being between um, you know, measures that we have in the 1800s and the measures that we see today? So these uh, indigenous nations that were located around the Great Plains and that were relying on the bison and 
I presume hunting the bison, right? Because bisons are not animals that are domesticated. They were roaming around wild. You say that they have a higher standard of living than uh, other nations, other people in other parts of the world. My measure such as height. So one thing that comes to mind is, is why that was the case. Because clearly, you know, there may have been like this great source of wealth in this area, but uh, other societies that have discovered new sources, new sources of wealth, say agriculture, uh, they have very quickly ended up in Malthusian traps. So there must have been something that somehow prevented maybe the population of these indigenous nations to increase to a point such that, you know, the presence of the herds of bisons was not sufficient, you know, to, to give a high standard of living to everybody. Yeah, so that's a great question. It's, it's I guess, not really something that we explore in detail in the paper. Um, but I think in part, the kind of balance that Indigenous nations had with the bison in the sense that for, you know, generations, they subsisted on the bison in a kind of equilibrium relationship. I know it's not a, it's not a part of the paper, but it's something that came to my mind, you know? Like as you move from hunter-gatherers to agriculture and settlement, the standard of living actually decreases, right? It doesn't increase. Yeah. But much more wealth has been generated. It's just that it has been, you know, translated into population growth and captured by an elite, right? Yeah. There is something else that is creating the higher standard of living. Yeah, I guess it, it isn't something that I've thought about in the sense of this kind of Malthusian world in, in terms of why uh, why we don't see a sort of Malthusian trap among the nations of the Great Plains. You know, when we were thinking about the standard of living being greater than in other um, indigenous nations and other European countries at this time, we're thinking about this measure of heights as uh, representing the kind of nutritional content that people are um, consuming throughout their lifetime, but also that mothers are consuming while their children are in the womb. And that's uh, ends up being reflected in terms of the, the heights of the adults in the population. So when we're thinking about the standard of living, we're really, we're using the idea that these people on the plains um, were consuming, you know, larger quantities of meat, maybe had the potential to be able to smooth their consumption in the way that bison could be preserved over time. And then that's manifested in terms of this measure of, of standard of, of living that we're looking at. You mentioned that the population of bison was exterminated or close to extinction, close to exterminated between the 1870s and the 1880s. Why? What was the reason for this? The reason that uh, this happens so quickly, uh, there's a couple of different, I guess, factors that that fed into this. So the the first explanation um, that we're looking at in the paper is uh, the fact that in uh, 1871 there was a tanning technology uh, development in the tanning technology uh, in Germany and England, and prior to about you know 1870. Bison hides were very uh, difficult to uh, tan. Um, it was quite labor intensive. Indigenous people did tan them and use them for a variety of different purposes, 
Um, but it really wasn't something that could be made into a commercially viable, you know, industrial production. And then suddenly with this tanning innovation, you see Europeans being able to tan bison hides much more quickly. Uh, and you see a demand for bison hides among by people in, in Europe. And so what you could imagine is that if there is a, you know, a demand, a market for these commodities, that gives people an incentive to actually engage in the, the production of these commodities. So this tanning technology allowed um, for a market for bison hides. This led to a number of settlers going to the plains to um, essentially try and capture the rents involved with this new market. But then a number of other factors kind of fed into the speed at which the bison were, were slaughtered. Um, so this is the time period that indigenous people were being forcibly settled onto reservations. And the US military saw this as a means of facilitating the settlement of indigenous people, right? If you do not intervene, if you allow this resource to be exterminated, you have essentially forced the hand of indigenous nations to surrender and to settle on reservation. So you have a kind of economic component to the, the slaughter, but then you also have a kind of deliberate attempt by the U.S. government to um, accelerate the, the speed at which the bison were slaughtered. So the paper has two parts. Uh, the first one is uh, to confirm that the near extinction of the bison was terrible for the people that had based their economies uh, around it. And the second is to understand uh, why it took the Native Americans so long to recover from this event. Focusing first specifically on the first part, could you tell us what type of a, a data set do you assemble and a, what type of like empirical strategy you have? Yeah, so when we were looking to examine how uh, the, the loss of the bison immediately impacted indigenous communities, we had to turn to a variety of different historical sources. And I think that uh, this section of the paper really highlights a lot of the issues that economic historians run into with trying to tell stories about history, tell stories about economics through the use of data. We were fortunate in that we found some data on the heights of Native Americans um, that had been collected in the late 1800s by physical anthropologist named Franz Boas. And so Boas led an expedition across North America to try and document the stature of indigenous nations. So he had collected this data set on about 15,000 different indigenous people um, over the course of about 10 to, to 20 years. And this data is available to researchers. And so we came across this data and we realized that it could be used in a kind of identification strategy where we try and look at how the trends in the heights of bison-reliant nations uh, evolved relative to the trends and heights of non-bison-reliant nations. So what we were essentially trying to do is see that as the slaughter of the bison began, do you start seeing that the heights of bison-reliant individuals decline relative to the heights of non-bison-reliant individuals? Part of this was kind of thinking about that original um, or the original work that had looked at the, the nations on the plains and saw that their heights were quite a bit larger than uh, the heights of other indigenous nations um, and other uh, European societies, and trying to see whether that height advantage persists even once the bison is eliminated. What we found was 
you know, perhaps not surprisingly, given this um, extent of this shock and the speed at which it occurred, is we found that there were substantial declines in the heights of bison-reliant nations relative to those who were never reliant on the bison. So you have uh, a difference, difference strategy. Yes, exactly. The treated, the treated group are, are the bison-reliant nations. So these are the nations that live around the areas where the bisons were but also that, according to some other data set, claim to be basing their economy on the bison, right? Because there were some nations that were also in these areas, but they were doing other things. They were maybe like working with agriculture or something else. Exactly. That would be the treatment group. And the, the control group was the nations that were never bison reliant, right? That's the control group. So you have a middle group. Correct me if, if, if I'm wrong. It's, these are bison-reliant nations, but that were in areas where the bison had already been exterminated prior to this like very rapid slaughter that started in 1871, right? Because the, the decrease of the bison was, you know, like a Hemingway's poverty, gradually and then suddenly, right? So yes. the ones that were living in areas where the bison was not there already, these ones are out of the data set. I was wondering why you dropped that middle group from the sample. Um, so this is a really good question. And actually, previous iterations of our paper had exploited the fact that we do have this other group of people. And so, you know, in the in the first rounds of the paper, we used two different identification strategies. So one was focusing on people who were bison-reliant at some point in time versus people who were not bison-reliant at some point in time. And then the second identification strategy said, let's focus on people who are exclusively affected by this rapid slaughter of the bison compared to people who had relied on the bison at some point in their history, uh, but at the point of time of the slaughter, they were no longer in the, the range of the bison. So you are now comparing one and three, and before you were comparing one and two, Yes. And I think this is partly, you know, shows what happens through the revision process. One of the advantages of comparing those who lost the bison rapidly to those who lost the bison gradually is that in a way you're holding constant any kind of unobservable factors that might be consistent across all bison reliant nations, right? There could be, you know, differences in government, differences in institutions that we're just not able to capture um, with our set of controls. And so by comparing rapid to gradual, we're able to hold those factors constant. Um, but in a way, you're also not getting the kind of cleanest differentiation of being reliant on the bison um, and being exposed to this rapid shock versus never being reliant on the bison. And I think the way in which the paper kind of the, the course uh, that the paper took was more to kind of talk about how when you have a, uh, an economic shock of this magnitude, what happens to communities over time and how do they adjust? Um, and I think that by comparing necessarily gradual bison to rapid bison, um, we're maybe missing a little bit of that comparison. So because this is a difference in different strategy and you have uh, described it very well, so we have, a, as I said, the treated group you know, these like one and three groups, uh, never reliant versus affected by the rapid slaughter. And then the, the time dimension mm. that I mentioned that compares 
old people versus young people because the data set was taken at one point in time by this uh, BOAS and, uh, anthropologist, right? And, and then, as, as you said, your finding is that the difference in difference coefficient uh, is negative in that the height decreases for the uh, young people relative to the old people and for the bison-reliant versus non-bison-reliant. But the way that you are describing it, it is that there was an initial difference that was in favor of the bison-reliant nations in that they were taller than the others, and the difference disappears. Yes. And I am wondering, so if the bison was such a great thing, you know, in terms of basing your economy around it because it was a great source of meat or bones or whatever it was, it seems to me that, you know, if we lived in like a, a modern existing waiting, you know, Western society or something, and uh, there we have rich people and poor people, right? We have differences in wealth. Presumably, rich people are taller. I don't know, but let's imagine <laughs> that rich people are taller. And now some aliens came and flattened completely our cities. Then all of us will become poor, right? right. Therefore, the difference in difference estimator will be will be negative as well, right? Yes. But it seems it seems to me natural that this is what is happening here, right? That the aliens have arrived and then everybody has become, you know, like a, re a regression to the bottom uh, in some sense. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that the, you're absolutely hitting the nail on the head here is that, you know, when you think of the magnitude of this shock, well, it's not surprising that we find this relative decline, you know, that disproportionately impacts bison communities. Um, but this really also highlights why we needed to use a difference in different strategy is because, you know, this is a time when um, indigenous people were being forcibly relocated to reservations. There were a number of federal policies that were implemented that, you know, disproportionately affected all indigenous communities. And so you would imagine that this is a time period when standard of living is declining across the board for indigenous nations. Um, and so what we wanted to do with the difference in different strategy is to see if the heights of bison reliant people were actually declining differentially in comparison to the heights of other non-bison reliant nations. We have been describing our regressions in which height is on the left-hand side, but you have other measures of well-being um, that also became worse for the bison reliant nations, etc. What other effects uh, do you estimate and what is your empirical strategy with respect to those? Yeah, so when we use the heights as uh, data, one of the advantages with that data is that we're able to use it in this difference in differences style framework. And it's exactly right what you said that, you know, outcomes for indigenous nations across the board were being impacted by this time. And so we really wanted to be able to difference out the fact that you might have observed um, declines in well-being even in the absence of the bison's slaughter. Now, unfortunately, with other measures of economic well-being, we don't have the same kind of difference in different strategy. So what we wanted to do was we wanted to supplement the heights regressions uh, with other measures of economic well-being that paint a more complete picture of the impact of the bison's decline. Um, granted, we have the caveat that the identification strategy might not be as sound as the difference in different strategy with the heights regression. 
So what we did was we turned to data from um, the censuses of population. Uh, we focused on the 1900 census of population in um, these uh, initial specifications. And here we were able to see the uh, measures of fertility uh, and measures of child mortality uh, and measures of sex ratios at birth. Um, so these were kind of additional measures of well-being that aren't always thought of as economic, but are correlated with economic uh, measures of well-being um, that allowed us to kind of say, well, we see this effect in heights. Are we seeing something similar when we're turning to other measures of well-being? So with that 1900 data, we were able to construct for each woman in the 1900 census, we were able to construct measures of the portion of children who are ever born who end up surviving. And what we did was we essentially regressed that outcome on an indicator for whether the nation the, that the um, woman belonged to, whether that nation was exposed to the rapid slaughter. Why can you not compare here old women versus young women? So we actually do a couple of uh, checks that are similar to, I think, what you have in mind. Um, so what we did is we we ran this specification for all women in the sample. So that would include women who were born prior to the bison slaughter. And then we also do a separate specification where we restrict to younger women who become fertile during the bison's decline, because we wanted to, to kind of see whether this was something that was only affecting people um, in that previous generation or whether it was continuing to have a persistent effect. So we didn't run that exact difference in different specification, but our analysis is kind of in line with, I think, the question that, that you have in mind. So for these specifications, what we did, we didn't have that difference in difference strategy, but what we did was we had uh, an indicator for whether you're exposed to the slaughter, which again, we define as being in the geographic range of the that would have been impacted by the rapid slaughter and whether you're also reliant on the bison. Um, and then we compared you to people who are never bison reliant, indigenous people who are never bison reliant. Um, and then what we do is we include a wide set of controls um, that we think might capture any potential factors that are simultaneously correlated with exposure to the slaughter, um, but that also might be correlated with outcomes in 1900. Um, so it's really a selection on observable strategy. What do you find? Um, so here we find that in the most extreme case, child mortality was about 16 percentage points higher uh, for women who belong to uh, nations that were exposed to the bison slaughter. Um, and then we don't see any major differences in fertility. So people weren't necessarily having more children. They weren't having fewer children. Um, but the fraction of children who, who are born, who survive, is lower for um, bison-reliant nations. And then the other thing that we were able to look at was the probability that a child is born female. So male neonates tend to be very fragile. So in instances of maternal deprivation, what we see is that those neonates tend to, to die more frequently than females. So when we ran the specification, we saw that there was about six to nine percentage points uh, more likely to, a woman was six to nine percentage points more likely to have um, a child who was born female compared to a child who was born male uh, if they had been historically reliant on the bison. And what this indicates to us is 
further evidence that these women were experiencing uh, deprivation while they were carrying children. Are these numbers plausible? I don't know the literature on, on, on this, but what you said can be interpreted in, in two different ways. Number one is, you know, broadly speaking, the likelihood that a fetus is a male versus female is 50%. I think maybe 51 and 49 or, or something else, you know? Now, six to nine percentage points difference in that would sound massive. Now, if the likelihood is coming from the fact that, broadly speaking, the same number of the same percentage of a males and females are born, but the males are less likely to survive, then it is more plausible. Uh, is that the second thing that you're referring to? Yeah, actually, so that's a great point. Both of those factors play a role. So not only are male neonates more fragile, um, but also the male babies are more fragile as well. So it's it's not necessarily, um, we're not, I guess we're measuring the kind of combination effect of both of those factors. But you're not saying that the chromosomes during the conception, is that the, the right word? You're not saying that the chromosomes get together in a XY combination, six to nine percentage points less likely than the XX combination. You are saying that, you know, they get together maybe slightly less likely, but then this broadly speaking parity in males and females gets exacerbated because the males are much less likely to survive the first couple of years of life or something. Exactly. And then also the less likely to survive in the womb, right? In the, in the in womb the, as well. Uh, okay, yes. great. I understand that. Okay. So broadly speaking, these, uh, uh, re- this, this second set of regressions are cross-sectional, uh, as you said. Uh, and I am wondering whether, you know, the two types of evidence are easy to reconcile or not, right? Uh, because if you had run a cross-sectional regression by looking only at the young height, uh, at the height of the young using the BOAS data, you will have found no effect, right? It's only the difference in differences that, that gives you the, the effect. But here you're finding an effect on the cross-section, right? Which is showing that along these other dimensions, the bion-reliant uh, nations were not just not better than the other ones as they had been previously, but actually worse. Um, you know, so 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 the sign of the the coefficient is is a, is a little bit different across the two types of regressions. Yeah. So I guess uh, I'm trying to think if we had run the kind of cross-sectional height specification post bison. Um, I don't think we have, or I would have to double check some of these. <laughs> it's a uh, as you can imagine, the years go by, and um, there's a lot, a lot of stuff that's checked along the way. Um, but I guess what you're asking is whether whether we believe that the cross-sectional results are are true. Is that kind of another way of? I mean, uh, obviously, we we have to be cautious about them. I think that you introduced the right amount of caveats. I don't want to add to those. You know, it's a, it's um, you know, this is a paper in which everything makes sense more in combination than separately. I think that that's the way that you present it, and I agree with this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that none of the 
empirical strategies are perfect, but when you present all of them alongside one another, the picture becomes clear. And I think that with this cross-sectional specification, the types of controls that we add to try and make sure that it's not something that's confounding um, our regressions that's really driving these results, I think that you know we've done enough to kind of check that these are that we've captured all of the factors that could be simultaneously correlated with the exposure to the slaughter and then outcomes in 1900. Um, that again, when you kind of put all of the evidence against uh, each other or next to one another, you you get this more kind of complete picture of of the impact of the bison, uh, the bison slaughter. So this is very important to document. Uh, I was not aware of this historical episode and the. Uh, I found it, I mean, fascinating. I don't know that's the right word, but I learn a lot from it. Uh, we don't necessarily need, you know, in uh, in social science to uh, give importance to results, uh, to empirical results that are surprising. Uh, you know, other results are surprising, but also, but, you know, but also worth a lot of attention. I think that this result falls in that second category. I don't know if you agree with me. It is wholly unsurprising that the you know, um, have a society that overwhelmingly depends on a natural resource. The depletion of that natural resource is going to make the society poorer, right? Hey. Another way of thinking about this is imagine that you have run the regressions that you have found that there is no effect. The natural conclusion would not have been, oh, I guess that, that uh, you know, the bison was not so important or, you know, uh, the Native Americans found something else to do. Clearly, the natural conclusion would have been, maybe my data has a lot of measurement error or maybe I'm not, you know, measuring things well or this Boas person who measured the thing in the 1900s didn't know what he was doing, right? This is unsurprising that you found this effect. I think that's true. And I think um I think for us we had you know read enough about this episode and this history that when we saw the immediate impacts manifest in the data that we were able to look at it it's not surprising. Right? You take away not only thinking about the kind of economic underpinning but you take away a major food source from a society that should manifest in terms of health effects. Um, so I agree that that is not necessarily the surprising part of the, the paper, but I think what did surprise us initially was this persistence of the shock, uh, which is what we look at in the second part of the paper is, you know, first we document that there is this kind of real health effect. And then we say, well, given that this health effect uh, likely also impacted economic outcomes, which we we actually also show in that section of the paper. Um, then we say, well, over time, societies would adjust. Uh, you know, that's kind of standard. We would expect societies to to adjust. And so when we saw that there was a kind of persistently lower level of income per capita into the long run, that I think was the factor that uh, was a little bit more surprising, at least originally. Do you want to tell me what you do in the second part? Sure. Yeah. So I'll start by saying that in the in the kind of first part of the paper, in addition to the measures looking at child mortality and sex ratios at birth, we also look at labor market outcomes. 
And we see that in 1900, men's labor market outcomes typically were lower among those who had been exposed to the slaughter compared to those who were never bison reliant. Um, but to us, that wasn't potentially uh, surprising, given that it had only been 10 or 15 years since the animal um, had been exterminated. Um, so we thought, okay, you know, this is not necessarily a reasonable time horizon where we would expect adjustment to have occurred. So in the second part of the paper, we say, okay, there was, you know, this initial shock. Well, what happened over time? So we draw on data from uh, Brian Lennard, uh, Nick Parker, and Terry Anderson's work, who compiled uh, income from a variety of sources uh, at the reservation level, so basically income per capita. Uh, and we run the same set of cross-sectional specifications. So again, comparing people who were exposed to the slaughter uh, compared to those who were never bison reliant. Uh, and we look at how income per capita evolved over the latter half of the 20th century. And essentially what we find is that across the, from 1945 all the way into 2019, there's about a 25% lower GDP per capita uh, among nations that were impacted by the bison. And I think that this kind of level shift uh, was to us what was really striking. Um, there's a figure in the paper that essentially shows the um, the level of income per capita for each type of community at each point in time. And it really is this level shift. There's no kind of variation in that difference um, through that entire 60 to 70 year time period. Um, so that's uh, what we do in the, the next part of the paper is we try and uh, understand that persistence. So these regressions start in the 1940s. And in the 1940s, presumably the divergence has already taken place, right? Because the bison became near extinct 50 years earlier, right? And then that cross-sectional difference in, 19, uh, in the 1940s Persist throughout. That's the yeah. finding. Yeah, that is the finding. And again, we see this difference in 1900 in terms of occupations, but unfortunately, we didn't have income data to be able to see if there's that kind of comparison in terms of the magnitude of the shock. Um, we we just have to, I guess, use each piece of evidence separately to um, to kind of paint this narrative over the the full course of the 20th century. So, so, and and the, the puzzle is okay. Well, some societies they had like a you know a source of livelihood fifty years earlier. How come that they did not find something else to do during that period? Um, some other occupation or industry. Now, one thing that I want to emphasize is that uh, at some point you refer to this in the paper as a one-time shock. And I'm not sure that this is a one-time shock. Like uh, the pandemic was a one-time shock in that we were all likely to become very sick, but then the vaccines came and then we're not likely to die anymore. Uh, the Spanish flu also when people became immunized, you know, it became uh, less dangerous. But here, the vision herds were working around they became extinct, and then they did not come back, right? So that, that shock persisted. I think the, the, the puzzle, I think, you know, should be interpreted on the lines of, well, they should have found something else. I mean, not sure. They could have found something else to do. How oh, I see that they didn't. 
That's actually an interesting way to to look at the the episode. Um, you're right. We do refer to it as a one time shock, but it's it's true. It's not like the bison came back, at least at that point in time. And it's not like there were a lot of other opportunities that then suddenly, um, you know, arose among bison uh, previously bison reliant nations. And so I think that is the you know we talk about this puzzle, this reversal. And so in a way, the the puzzle of the reversal is well why was adjustment not happening during this time period um and what are your hypotheses and do you have any evidence for things that might have helped along that line so i think this is you know highlights another i guess complication of doing research in this area is that this is a you know 150 year time period basically between uh, when the bison slaughter began and today. And there's a lot of stuff that happened <laughs> during that time period. Um, and I think that there's a lot of uh, factors that played into this kind of persistence of poverty among those impacted by the bison slaughter. The factor that we kind of highlight and we investigate empirically in the paper has to do with the role of credit or access to capital in facilitating economic adjustment. And so there are actually, you know, there's a couple of other factors that we think might be important. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, the bison were an important spiritual and cultural component for many of these nations. So taking away the spiritual symbol of a set of communities, you could imagine having an immense traumatic impact. And that's something that this paper wasn't able to explore, um, but that we hope to explore in future work. So I did want to mention it because I think it's something that's actually a really important part of this, this narrative and this adjustment. Um, but again, the factor that we focused on in the paper was the role of credit, the role of capital in being able to facilitate other margins of adjustment. How do you explore this empirically? So we compiled some more data. Uh, we basically drew on data from a paper by Matt Jaremski um, looking at the location of banks in 1870. And we wanted to know if, if credit is something or access to capital is something that typically facilitates economic adjustment in the face of some kind of shock, then is it the case that if nations who are impacted by a shock, if they're exposed to more credit or more capital, are they able to adjust over this longer time horizon? Um, so we use this banking data to look at proximity to a bank in 1870, which is the time period that the slaughter began. Um, and then we look at how that um, exposure to the bison slaughter was essentially um, impacted for nations who were either close to a bank or far away from a bank uh, at the beginning of the slaughter. So here, I mean, the independent variable is distance from a bank yes i mean the interaction the interaction of this with the being uh, bison reliant or not right so it is it is the interaction that the uh, exacerbates or alleviates the negative shock that bison reliance nations felt and and the is this a type of regression of the same time that you mentioned earlier, that is uh, based on income per capita start, starting in the 40s or? 
Actually, we look at a couple of different outcomes when we're doing this exercise. So again, the, the point of this exercise was to try and understand the kind of whole picture of persistence. Um, so what we actually do is we start with data from, uh, again, the censuses of population uh, from 1900, 1910, and 1930. And what we wanted to do was we wanted to see whether during this I don't want to call it initial, but we could think of it maybe like a medium runtime period, whether there's some sort of adjustment in the, the types of occupations in which uh, people uh, found themselves and whether this occupational adjustment was occurring differentially for places that had more access to credit in the form of a financial institution. So my knowledge of this area, this period in history and, and in this uh, this geographical area is, is pretty limited. It, what I know about it comes mostly from the movies. And I don't know that in the movies that I have seen, the Westerns uh, that are based in this period, it will be very plausible that a Native American goes to a bank in the 1870s or 1880s and says, you know, uh, I have just my bison kid and I want to, you know, get into industry. Can you give me a loan? Is it something that was actually happening that, uh, you know, in Indian Americans, Native Americans had actually like a realistic access to credit uh, if they were living close to a bank? So that's an excellent question. And that's something that continues to um, reverberate today, right, is discrimination people, indigenous people continue to face discrimination when they're accessing financial institutions. So you're absolutely not wrong that there would have been substantial discrimination during this time period. Um, but I think that part of the access to bank story has to do with agglomeration. Though it's not necessarily always the case that indigenous people would have walked into a bank and you're right, they couldn't always do that, um, you know, and then said, I want a bank loan to start a business or something like that. What I think was happening was that these banks facilitated industrial development. Um, and then the types of jobs that were available um, that indigenous people found themselves in either would have been influenced by the presence of industry, or in the case of the goals of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, would have been influenced by the kind of agricultural implements that the BIA was providing at that time period. So that changes a little bit the interpretation of uh, these uh, mechanisms of persistence or, or convergence, uh, right? Because if you describe these uh, mechanisms of access to credit, walking into a bank branch and getting a loan, that's what comes to my mind. Uh, the way that you describe it now, it's more along the lines of, well, if they happen to find themselves in areas in which there is economic growth that has been facilitated by you know, proximity to access to capital, or maybe by other things, but that's the one that you have in your data, then they are going to be lifted with all the other boats, you know, in that area in which, you know, the tide is is is, is coming. Yeah, so I, I do think that that's, um, that's right. There's kind of two uh, channels that access to capital, through which access to capital may play a role. And one has to do with the kind of agglomeration story, and the other has to do with the individual who is able to access a, a bank, for example. I think in the sense of 
our analysis in 1870, we're talking a little bit more about the agglomeration side, but as we get into the 20th century, especially later in the 20th century, you would imagine that access to credit would then um, facilitate kind of individual decisions or outcomes or you know entrepreneurship, for example, home ownership. Um, and these are a couple of things that we look at uh, in the paper, I believe actually in the appendix at this point. Anything else that I have not asked you about that you want to mention that is important? I think that one thing that we tried to do with this paper is we tried to stay true to the narrative of um, how the bison slaughter impacted Indigenous communities. And I think one thing that we try and do in economics is we try and sometimes make very broad claims about particular instances um, to be able to try and learn something about economics. And I think in the case of our paper, we do highlight the role of credit in being able to adjust to economic shocks. But I think that the story that we hope is told through the paper is that of the impact of this really traumatic historical event on Indigenous communities and what these types of policies have meant in terms of preventing economic adjustment. Um, and so I guess the, yeah, the final thing that I just hope that we convey in this paper is that, um, you know, this is really the, the center piece uh, of the paper is trying to tell this uh, story of these nations. Thank you, Maggie, for coming to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk for other past or future episodes that you may find interesting. Introductory music and logo by Aitana Lanesiso. Episode produced by Anderson Tang. <laughs>